0: Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy the sermon from lead pastor Joe Still. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. I hope you're having a Merry Christmas. I really, really do already. I I also hope that you're enjoying um, the the work of those who decorate it. Man, I love, yeah, I love, it's just beautiful. And uh, it just brings—it brings such joy. I, I sneak down here sometimes and plug everything in and just sit. Then I unplug and go back to my office. But uh, it's just, it's, I haven't figured out how quite, quite yet how to work those lights. There's some technology involved in those that above my pay grade. but um, And I probably don't need to know because I'll probably break them. But uh, it, uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing. And uh, I, I hope you're already experiencing the, the joy of Christmas. Uh, some of us had the privilege yesterday of, uh, well, Friday night actually, and Saturday of, of serving uh, up at Oak Brook Elementary Stool- School for. Our uh, love gave event that we've been doing now I don't know four or five years annually and we do a yard give and you know so many of you donated things Uh, a lot of you we uh, got to offload your cars and it was just fun Friday night and then Saturday uh, people came in and actually shopped for Christmas presents at our yard give and when I say shopped it was for free they didn't have to pay anything for them Um, but there was such joy and people just got so blessed and uh, one of the great blessings is being able to partner uh, with the, the faculty and staff at Oak Brook. They've pretty much taken this and ran with it. Uh, we we kind of just kind of show up. They, they're all excited about blessing the community this way. And so God has moved us from just kind of being, you know, somebody who goes and minister up there to, to partnering in the sake of the gospel for our, our community and our neighbors and blessing. And it's a great thing. God just strengthens some relationships and uh, I'm, I'm just very, very grateful for that. Uh, one of the Ways that those relationships got started was first through invitation, through connecting with people. And one of the things I hope you will be doing this season is extending invitation for people to join you uh, as you celebrate the birth of our Lord and as we're going through Advent celebrating the, the, the imminent return of, of our King. Uh, and we want to help you do that to give invitation for people to join you in that. And so, uh, some on our team, I started to say we, I didn't. And I can't do this stuff. But some on our team have developed uh, some tools that are invitations. There's one that's a little larger like this. I hope you saw them coming in, but now you know what they are, so pick some up on the way out. The larger one is, you can write a personal note to somebody uh, and give it to them. Uh, we also have some business-sized cards that you can give out. Uh, and, and again, I hope you're taking advantage of this season and saying Merry Christmas a lot. But now I want to add something to that. You can say Merry Christmas. I would love for you to join me at at church is we we just celebrate uh, the good news of Jesus' coming at Christmas. And uh, you can actually begin maybe even getting into a gospel conversation with those folks because people kind of expect that a little more this time of year. One of the realities is that churches uh, all all over our land uh, at this time are kind of probably in the same thing with this, you know, celebrating the familiar story about a star and some shepherds and and, you know, a baby, and a couple, and a manger, and it's beautiful. It's, it's a powerful, meaningful story. I think mostly because it's all true. It, it, actually, it actually happened. You know, the, the fact of the birth of Jesus Christ changed everything. I mean, it just changed everything. That, that first Christmas, and including, you know, it's the hinge of human history. It's, uh, it, it changed how we date uh, history. Our calendars changed when Jesus came. Now, when, when we, we know that, that he kind of split time like that, on the backside of Christmas, before, before Jesus was born, there was sin. And there was despair. And there really was hopelessness in in so many ways. On our side of Christmas, we have a Savior. On, the, on that, that, that back side of Christmas, there was sin. On our side, there's the Savior who brings in this life deliverance from sin. Who, who brings freedom from sin. And he made all of that different when he came back to earth to right the wrongs that had come from sinning our world. Jesus, Jesus changed everything. And here's the truth. He continues to do that. He continues to bring the change that he brought that first Christmas and through the power of the gospel, through his life, death, burial, and resurrection, he's doing that. And one day, he's going to return. And when he returns, he's going to look at this old earth and he's going to say, that's a wrap. That's, That's a wrap. Now, centuries ago... Uh, the, the early church, the, the, this, this new movement of following Jesus, those Christians knew that, yes, we live on this side of Christmas, but things still are, aren't perfect. Sure, we live historically on this side of Christmas, but eternally there's still this longing. We long for more of the Christmas story. But while we wait for the fullness to come, we celebrate. Because we know that one day he's coming again. Here's what we may not live with, but I hope you'll start. It may be soon. I believe it could be any time. Now we talked about that in a lot of detail last week as we kicked off our our season of celebrating Advent. The season where we celebrate not only the, the incarnation of Christ come as a babe, but the future coronation of his coming as a king. And most of us realize that the Christmas story, you know, didn't begin with, you know, Frosty and Rudolph and Santa and some elves in a, you know, in a shop. Most of us know that that wasn't the beginning of the Christmas story, but here's what may be a little bit surprising. The Christmas story did not actually begin in the New Testament. It didn't actually begin where so often we we just think it didn't actually begin in the scene that's on the stage. Christmas actually began much further back, way, way back, a long, long time ago in the Garden of Eden. That's where we see the first hint of the Christmas story. See, every great story has a great backstory. How many of you have ever saw the, um, that epic uh, war movie, Saving Private Ryan? Saving Private Ryan. It, it was based on a, a real-life story of a soldier named Fritz Nyland, who became what was then known as a sole surviving son? Uh, up until World War II, this did not exist, but after the Japanese sank the USS Juno, something changed, and the War Department enacted this new policy, this new rule, because on the USS Juno, there were five brothers, and all of them went down a mother and father's only sons. All were killed in the sinking of the USS Juno uh, on, on that day and as a result of that sinking in 1942, the, the War Department issued this new mandate called the, the, the Sole Survivor Policy. And basically, it was this: that there would, uh, if one that siblings couldn't serve together in the same location, and, and two, if it ever got down to one surviving son, that because only men were in the you know battlefield that day. If it ever got down to one, they would be brought home. And the whole movie about Saving Private Ryan has that that history as its backstory. Great stories have great backstories. And the truth is, the Christmas story, the greatest of all stories, has the greatest of all backstories. And we're going to take the next few weeks to dive into that backstory so that we understand even more powerfully the beauty of this story that we see in the in the nativity. So if you have your Bibles, I want to ask you to turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, now in my Bible, it's like page 2, so it shouldn't be hard to find today, okay? You, you could get there pretty quickly because, and you know, many of you kind of know the story and you probably know from uh, what you know about the creation narrative that, that God created the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve. He, he created Adam first, the Bible tells us, and then he took a rib out of Adam's side and, and created Eve, and there are countless theories on why God created man first and, and then the woman. There are, there are female theologians who have said that the reason God created man first and then woman was he, he created man and then looked and said, I can do better than that. And then there there are some male theologians who will tell you, no, the reason that God created woman second was because he didn't want to have to go through that whole business of creation with her trying to tell him what to do. So you you have to choose which side of the aisle you're going to be on there. Okay, I don't have a dog in that fight. Okay. but one of the first things that God did when he created Adam and Eve, when he, when he planted them in the garden, uh, actually even before the creation of Eve we know this, that God told Adam something and then we know later that Eve also had been told this. But in Genesis chapter 2, if you want to just look back uh, in verse 15, it says, The Lord God took man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it, to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Every tree in this garden, man, yours. It's beautiful. There's trees everywhere. Beautiful fruit. Except. Except. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So God starts by saying, you have lots of freedom. I've created this beautiful place. I've planted you in it. You can have anything except this one thing. And that's all... That's all Adam and Eve had to do in order order to submit to God and be obedient to God was enjoy his creation, work it, keep it, and just don't eat of one fruit. And we know that for some time they did that. We don't know how long, whether it was two minutes, two weeks, 2,000 years. We don't know how long it was. But there is a sense that if their obedience had continued... Their perfect harmony with God would have continued as well. And their perfect harmony with one another. I mean, think about it. God just had one ground rule. Just one rule. He, no Ten Commandments yet. Just, just the one. Don't eat of this one tree. Right in the middle. It won't be hard to spot. It's right in the middle. You can, you'll find it. You'll know it when you see it. But we're told that like us, Adam and Eve don't like being told what to do. They didn't like that. And so the third chapter of Genesis recounts the day they set out to kind of build their own little kingdom. To kind of have their own personal rule and reign. And how it killed them. How it kills us. Because it unleashed a struggle, the Bible tells us, between good and evil that corrupted all of creation. It's a pivotal moment in the creation story. It's pivotal for all uh, of the Christian faith. Because in this moment, in this story, is where God introduces us to the great antagonist in the story. To Satan. to, to, To the evil one. He, he appears in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. It says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, here's what I think is going on. Right, right out of the gate here. First introduction to Satan. We're going to see what I think of as three plays in, in Satan's game plan. For, for, for deceiving us. Just right out of the gate, there's a what I'll call... Have you ever seen maybe a football team who has three or four good plays and they just run them and they run them and they run them and everybody on the other side is screaming at their defensive coach saying, he's going he's gonna to run play number two, stop it! It's a running play, you know, but they can't stop it. Well, it's kind of like this. Satan has like three plays that are so successful with humanity, he just keeps running them. And we see them right here in, in the opening of, of Genesis. He runs these plays so that we will be lured into refusing to obey and submit to God. And the first one is this. He questions God's Word. He just He calls God's Word into question. He said, did God really say that you can't eat? There's all this great fruit." Come on, did God say you can't have none of this? So he questions God. Second thing he does, we'll see, look at verse 2. It says, and the woman said to the servant, no, we we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now we don't know that God said that last part. She kind of maybe added some stuff to it, but she was clear she wasn't supposed to eat it. Okay, she was really clear. She understood that. Verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. Let's play number two. He disputes God's word. He disputes God's word. This is and he does this. He, he he's denying the word of God. He said, God had said, You eat, you die. Satan said, it Won't happen. Surely that won't happen! Surely! God would... No way! Verse 5. For God knows that when you eat, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. This is third play. He runs the third play where he replaces God's Word with his own. He replaces the Word of God with his own sinister words that sets to destroy us. He says, you won't die! Your eyes will be open, man. You'll be like God. You'll be finally living the good life that you've always wanted. Your heart longs for it, so just go for it. Man, you ought to eat this stuff. It's life-changing. And so the father of lies runs these three plays. He calls into question God's word. He disputes God's word. And he replaces God's word with what seems culturally acceptable. And Eve buys into it. She buys the lie. And now you and I live in the aftermath of sin. We we live in this aftermath of sin. Look at verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food. And that it was delight to the eyes. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And from that moment on. There was just a shudder in creation. But look at the rest of the verse. It says, And she also gave some to her, her husband who was with her and he ate. Now notice it says he was with her. He was there the whole time. That discussion with Satan was going on. Adam, Adam was right. He was with her. Now you may be expecting that this would be a great place to, you know, kind of hit another joke. Kind of go after Eve and women. But if I were to do that, I'm afraid we would miss something. I'm just afraid. Now Eve should not have eaten the fruit. Ladies just you can plug your ears for a minute. I want to talk to the men. Yes she shouldn't have eaten the fruit. But brothers please hear me say this. Adam should have protected her from this deception. That was his job. And he failed miserably. He should have protected his wife from this temptation. He should have stepped up. He should have stepped in. And then he should resist it himself. But none of that happened. Not, not, not a part of it. And you see immediately in God's account of these event, events. The fallout in the aftermath of sin. It, the fallout was immediate. Because the first thing that happens is the relationship that they had with God was lost. Because here's, here's the truth about the fallout of sin. Sin always distances people from God. Always. Your sin, my sin, it distances us from God. That's what it It separates us. Verse 7 is a very, very interesting verse. It may even seem strange at first. It says the eyes of both were open and they knew they were naked. See, it's kind of like you're walking around naked and you don't know it. You know, most of us know when we're naked. You know, it's a good thing that most of us know when we're naked because you don't want to go outside that way. You know, they didn't know it. They, they didn't see it. it. I know it sounds kind of strange that they didn't notice, but look at this. And, and in the midst of this, they, they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin, loincloths. Here's why I think that they didn't notice because up until that moment, they, had, they were in perfect harmony. They lived in perfect innocence. There was, they were completely uninhibited because there was no sin. They felt no guilt because there was no sin, there was no shame, there was nothing. But the first thing that happens the moment sin enters the world, they want to cover themselves, they want to hide because sin causes all of that to fall apart. It causes distancing. See, creating this earthly crisis just really creates this cry now for heavenly healing. And we're going to see that in a moment. Verse 8 points this out. And they heard the sound of the word God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Now, I pray that when you read that verse, that you let it just kind of soak over you. That you not only hear it, read it, but you experience it. They heard God coming and they, they ran to hide. Now, just imagine for a minute how silly that must have looked. The created being trying to hide from the creator God. It was was just silly. But here's why it's important to grab this. Because we're silly. We try to hide from God. All the time. This this didn't only take place in the garden. You do something that you regret. And you know that not God knows it. But you still try to hide now, how, how do we do that? Well, oftentimes what will happen is Christians will start trying to avoid their Christian friends. They'll try to avoid godly counsel. They'll, they'll start going and trying to seek advice for, for people outside of the faith because they, they want to hear what they want to hear. And usually it'll start looking like this. People who had been regular, weekly, in, in their attendance, in their small group, or their Bible study, or coming to, to, to corporate worship, they'll start letting that slip and they'll go from you know being there all the time to being frequent then being occasional and then not showing up at all because they don't want to put themselves in a setting where they're gonna to have to listen to a message where the Holy Spirit might convict them of something through God's Word that they've said or done and you see it's that same feeling when a child is told by mom or dad no more cookies and they walk back in the room and the child's got his hand in the cookie jar. It, we, we, we experience that same feeling of being caught like that. Being caught in a lie. We know what that feeling's like. Some, t- some, some would know what it's like to have been, you know, in a college dorm room where you know you've gone a little too far. And you think, dear God... And something happens. Maybe when you, when you close the lid on that, that laptop and you had been looking at things that you know you shouldn't and there's this wave that washes over you and overwhelms you of shame and guilt. It's the feeling that you have when you've been at work too much and at home too little. And you know it. And you want to hide. You want to hide from God. You want to hide from others. It didn't just happen in the garden. It started there. But it continues in each of us. And sin has been creating this distance between God and his people ever since. And that's, that's why God told them, don't, don't even take a bite of that tree. It will wreck you. Because God knew of the shame and the guilt and the fear and the pain that was going to get released. And he did not want that for them. And please hear this, he does not want that for you. That is not his plan for your life. He has something better. But that's not the only fallout of sin. Another fault, Yeah, it distances us from God, but it also divides people from one another. It distances us from God, but it divides people from one another. The struggles in friendships, the struggles in relationships, the struggles in the workplace, the, the, the struggles in marriages can all be traced back to Genesis chapter 3. Look at verse 9. It says, But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, Well, who told you that you were naked have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat and the man said the woman whom you gave to be with me she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate there's a reason we read that and snicker just a little bit because most of us are thinking sounds just like a man you know Well, I didn't want to do it. You know, I didn't want to do that. But this woman that you gave me, you know, it's just, it fascinates me. Adam throws Eve right under the bus and the bus hadn't even been invented yet. Just throws her under the bus. But notice what else Adam does. He tries to throw God under the bus. Not, not just the woman, the woman you gave me, God. He, 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 blames, he blames God. The, the, the woman you gave me, everything was fine, God. You know, you and I were, man, we had a good thing going on until she shows up. You sent her. I didn't ask for her. He just plays this blame game. And again, there's a reason why we kind of snicker at this. It looks so Childish but we also laugh because we see ourselves in it. We, we see ourselves pulling this same stunt all the time trying to blame everybody around us for our own choices. Now the, the purpose of Genesis 3 is not to so we can figure out who to blame. It's not about Adam's fault or Eve's fault. They're both equally guilty. You know Yeah, Eve brought it to to Adam, but man, he dove on it quickly. You know, he jumped right in there. And we see that what began was a cycle of blame and this legacy of broken relationships. And we we see this pattern emerging out of both of them neglecting their responsibilities to the other and to God. And because of their choice to sin, their relationship ends up getting wrecked. As well as their relationship with God. See this, this broken relationship dynamic. This operating you know, at full capacity here. It's operating at full capacity in marriages and every relationships today. Just like it did with Adam and Eve. We see them struggling back and forth for control and domination. They, they, they want something and they go after it. And they step on those around them. But that's not how God designed it. See, God gave husbands and wives appropriate but differing responsibilities and roles within the relationship of marriage. He he gave co workers, He gave employers and employees. He he gave these roles. And in a marriage, each man and each woman have their own unique responsibilities. God gave them their own unique personalities, their own unique giftings within the context of their marriage to bless the other person, not to dominate, not to control. Not to passively engage. And see, we we see in the scriptures Eve seizing control and Adam living passively. And we see that today in marriages everywhere. One passive, one domineering. I don't care what label you give to it. I don't care what big psychological term you lay on it. You can put it in the latest DSM manual. Here's what it is. It's just sin. It's sin. And it leads to brokenness in relationships and strains in marriage and in families and in friendships and in the workplace. Why? Because we all got it. We've all been touched by it. And it makes every relationship at every level more confusing, more difficult, more frustrating because of sin. A third major fallout of the aftermath of sin is this. Sin drives people into suffering and death. It steers you right into it. Runs you right into suffering and death. See all the physical suffering that we experience in this world is a direct result of sin. Now I don't know maybe hopefully it did it stand maybe stood out to you immediately Uh, but if it hasn't I promise if you'll read and reflect on Genesis 3 it it, it will. God begins doling, doling out the consequences of sin and it's all related to suffering. In verse 16 God speaks directly to Eve and he says this to the woman he said I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing in pain you shall bring forth children. See pain and childbirth didn't exist before sin entered the world. Now children had been born yet but that wasn't going to be a part of the female experience until until sin came. And before God even described the relationship breakdowns, he begins dealing with this suffering component. He describes the increased pain, the natural suffering that sin brings in its presence. And then God goes on in verse 17 and he goes speaking to the man and he says this, And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, that you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. So the, the, the whole creation was cursed because of what Adam did. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. God tells Adam that work, work that God had originally planned to be something that brought great joy, something that brought great fulfillment, something that refreshed the people that he created was now being turned and twisted and distorted into something that would be difficult and filled with pain and great frustration. And God says, and one day you're going to die and you're going into the ground. Because God always keeps his word. His word never returns void. Now as best as we can tell, death was not an original part of God's design. It came directly as a a part of sin. And pain and suffering came directly as a part of sin. Now here's the deal. God gives you the ability, gives me the ability, gave Adam and Eve the ability to choose whether they're going to do things his way or our way. You have have a choice. God gives you choice. But what you don't get to choose are the consequences of choices. Those were written into the fabric of creation. Those were written by God in the fabric of culture. Choosing sin has consequences. Often immediate, but more often not. More often the consequences of the sins I choose fall on the next generation. And the generation after that. It has a crippling effect generations downstream because of choices that I made. And we see that in the garden. We see it in the garden. And your kids, my kids, bear the scars and the burdens of my sin. And the same was true from the garden. See, in the garden center of the world through Adam and Eve. The world at this point, when it comes, the whole of creation begins to decay. Adam and Eve begin to experience something they've never known before. They They start aging. They start aging. And death eventually comes as a result. Now, there are a lot of things in this world that we think of as being natural or normal. You hear people say, well, that's just normal. That's just natural. You know, it was not natural in the garden. Until sin came. God created normal different, friends. He had a different plan. There was no physical pain. There was no difficulty in working. The earth was not unpredictable and death was not inevitable. Those things didn't exist. But because sin came, we live in a fallen world. God did not want that for you. But now suffering is natural. Death does come. We have two families in our church that have been impacted by the death of their father. The Lancasters and the Maples family this week. Death, death comes. Because Satan deceived the first humans, the rest of humanity now endures this different broken world. Different from what God intended. Sin ruined everything. And the moment that Adam and Eve chose to disobey God, unwittingly they subjected the rest of us to natural suffering. And the truth is, when you or I sin, we subject others to natural suffering in this brokenness. I I need to make sure that before pride sinks in because somebody might think, you know, if I'd have been back there, I'd have said no. I'd I'd have did that, just say no. I'd have said no. Friends, you'd have picked that fruit, you'd have ate that fruit, and I'd have been right there with you. Because I know my heart. And because I've got to hang out with some of you for a long time now, I know some of your hearts. You'd have picked the fruit and eaten. So we can't just blame Adam and Eve. We'd have been right there with them. I, I know of countless times I've made decisions. God has said, Joe, go do this. And I didn't go. Oh, God said, you know, don't do that. And I and do it. That's, that's what sin us to all of us. We choose the whisper of Satan over the voice and word of God. And all of creation was scarred from that point on. There's a two-word phrase that's all throughout the Bible that I love. And it's appropriate in this moment that in the midst of all of that rebellion, in the midst of sin coming into the world, this thought occurs, but God. Don't you love that phrase? Sin is busting out. Creation is distorted and destroyed. But God. Again, it's all over his word. Now here's the deal with the Christmas story, but God was working upstream, even in the middle of the rebellion. Some of you were sharp enough a minute ago to realize that I skipped a few verses in the middle of the passage when we were looking at God doiling out kind of the curse and sin, you know, those kinds of things. God addressed the serpent, and this is what he said to Satan. He said, you're going to have to suffer too. And he begins by telling him in verse 14, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now please remember that right smack in the middle of this great rebellion, verse 15 lands. Because there's something important there. God in verse 15 is going to give us a glimmer of hope. In fact, the next verse is the first prophecy of the coming of Jesus at Christmas. The first the first prophecy of the, the, the Messiah coming and we're just three pages in you know in, into God's story. Father God is going to say something about Jesus and about what Christmas is going to be about and he's going to say it to Satan and one of the things I hope you'll notice about verses 14 and 15 there, there, there are there's this idea out there that, there that there's this good and evil struggle And that these are two opposite but equally powerful forces at work in the world. Verses 14 and 15 don't read that way. When I read verses 14 and 15, God doesn't give Satan a chance to talk. God basically said, zip it. Shut your face and listen. And then he says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring catch this he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel the NIV translates it this way he will crush your head and you will strike his heel and what's that all about because this is part of the curse that God is bringing on Satan and he's saying that one day there's going to be a descendant of Eve sometime down the road he's going to come and here's what he's going to do He's going to hit you with a headshot that you will not recover from. It is going to be a headshot. It is going to be fierce. It is going to mark you and you're going to lose power. Now you're going to strike his heel. It's kind of like saying this. You're going to end up with a massive concussion. You're going to be almost brain dead Satan. And he's going to stub his toe. That's kind of the language that's being used here. Uh, so that you understand that what's going on. Yeah, you're going to bring a little bit of damage to the seed of the woman one day, but it's not going to be anything compared to what he does. Yes, you're going to strike him on Calvary on Friday, but Sunday, Sunday's coming, and when he walks out of that grave, it's going to be a headshot for you, baby. Your power's gone. Your death is coming. The wound that he is going to inflict on that day, Satan will never recover from. It will be a permanent blow. Because Christ won a victory that day. Now, because of that, the truth is, we're going to reign with him forever and ever. Because of that, the empty tomb is an eternal reminder that Satan has been crushed. It might have looked on Friday like he had some kind of power, but... What he did, even it was brutal, even though it was horrible, for the Lord of life, for the Lord of all creation, it was just a flesh wound, man. It was like he got a splinter because of who he is. And we see this, this is the first declaration of the gospel that Christ will overcome. He will overcome right here. In Genesis 3, Christmas is foretold. We get to see in in the middle of sin, in the middle of sin's power to to destroy, in the middle of human rebellion, the glimpse of Christmas. The glimpse glimpse of Jesus coming. And I hope you see how awesome that is. It's just beautiful to me that the first promise of Christmas is right here in Genesis 15. He's going to bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. It's just, it's incredible to me this, that, that God's son, this was God's plan. And this is what it says to me at the first sign of sin, God reveals a Savior. At the very first time sin enters, at the moment sin comes, God says, I'm sending a Savior. I got a plan for this. Do not lose hope. Your hope is going to be in Christmas. And we see that being displayed Over in the New Testament, in the Gospels, Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, if you want to turn there. Matthew chapter 1 tells us the story of Joseph and an angel appearing to him. And in verse 21, the angel said to Joseph, Son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. This is a God thing, Joseph. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from what? From Genesis 3. He will save his people from their sin. The the name Jesus means the Lord saves. And on that first Christmas, he was just a little baby then. But 33 years later, after that baby had grown, after having lived a perfect, sinless life, after dying a sacrificial, atoning death on the cross, after being raised to life and then ascending into heaven, the Apostle Peter speaks these words in Acts chapter 4 verse 12. He says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven among which men must be saved. God selected perfect name for his perfect son because the only one who could truly impact imperfect people was the perfect one he was the only one who could change the game and so Jesus' life his birth, his ministry, his death all of it bore the truthfulness of that statement on the back side of Christmas there was sin and there was pain and suffering and despair but on, on our side Where we live, there's a Savior. His name, he's the Christ the Lord. And while sin can create distance between us and God, and while it can wreck relationships, and while we all succumb to the the natural suffering and to death, Jesus was born to save us from the power of sin. He was born for that. And you know as well as I do, that just because Jesus came, everything hadn't been made perfect. Re- relationship still break down. Suffering still happens because of sin. As I was, I came up with Kathy, Kathy came to the women's Christmas party last night I heard they had a great time but as I was up here working one of the, a thought occurred to me I wonder how many people have ever read Genesis chapter 3 and, and just went man this God guy he's like really touchy. You know, I mean, it, it was just one sin. And in the cosmic scheme of things, it was, just seemed kind of like a little sin. I mean, did, did you see all the bad stuff that happened? All this pain, all this suffering? I mean, because they, all they did was they ate a piece of fruit, man. Just, just one little piece of fruit. That's what you, why did God make such a mountain out of a molehill? What, what's, what's up with that? They, they just took a bite of some fruit for crying out loud, man. Nobody's perfect. Do you realize that's God's point? That's God's point. Nobody's perfect except Him. Nobody's perfect. The Bible says, No, not one. None of us are perfect. And that's why he had to send the only perfect one from heaven to come and live a perfect life and die a perfect atoning sacrifice so that peace could be made between God and man. He was the only one that can do it. You remember we talked, read a moment ago about what happened after Adam and Eve sinned. Crippling shame came. You know, and they they tried to hide it. They tried to cover themselves, you know, with fig leaves. We didn't go on and read verse 21. Verse 21 says this, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins. Some translations say of animal skins and clothed them. You you know, they had made these fig leaves. Why would God need to come along and, and, and do this other covering? You know, was it because the fig leaves didn't cover everything else appropriately? Were they itchy? I don't know. But something, I believe, was going on here. See, they were the only two people on the face of the earth. I don't think it was a modesty issue. I don't think it was an itchy issue. I think God was saying something very loud, very clearly, for the very first time, that he would end up saying over and over and over again. Because what God did is God took an animal that he had created after they sinned and God shed its blood. Now I don't know this for certain, but because of what God commands later for his people, I believe God did this in the sight of Adam and Eve. I believe he killed that animal in the sight of Adam and Eve. I believe he saw that, they saw that animal's blood flow. I know this is graphic, I'm sorry, but it's just true. I believe that that they were there now don't forget this what one of the first things that God gave Adam as a task to do in the garden with the animals was to do what name them Adam had named this animal you know when I grew up that made that animal a pet And God takes that animal and he kills it and he skins it. They had never seen death. An animal had not died up. There was no death on the planet yet. But Adam, God does this and he covers them in the skin of this animal because God is saying something I believe that in the Old Testament he says again and again and again and it's simply this. God teaches his people over and over again sin brings death. Sin brings death. Sin brings death. That's what the sacrificial system in the Old Testament is all about. Same message started in Genesis. Sin brings death and only God, only God can cover it. No human being is going to be able to cover it. Man's not going to be able to pay for his own sin. Sin brings death. Hebrews 9.22 tells us this, that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. It's only echoing what the Old Testament says in Leviticus chapter 17. And what takes place is God is telling them something. Sin always, you may think it doesn't, you may think you can get away with it, but sin always brings death. And all of this would be a foreshadowing of what would happen when the perfect lamb of God would lay down his life. You know nobody took Jesus's life, don't you? In one of those illegal trials that was held before he was crucified, he stood before a guy named Pontius Pilate who was the Roman leader uh, that day, or thought he was, and Jesus told him, you're not taking my life, I lay it down. There's a big difference between those two things. He said, I'll do it to restore relationships, I'll do it to bring peace with God, I'll do it so that one day all pain and suffering will go away. And I'll do it, so that I will finally crush Satan. And I will crush the power of sin and it will exist no more. And the problems of sin will be no more. And peace will exist between my Father and those who love him. And he said, I'm gonna do that. I'm gonna go to the cross. And after that, I'm gonna come back. And I'm gonna rule and reign forever. And my people are gonna be with me. And I'm gonna be their God." And things like addictions will evaporate. Things like pride will dissolve. All of it will fade into this eternal peace in Christ. Pain will be gone forever. Instead, there will be peace in our, in our new bodies. Relationships will be reconciled by his peace. Because our hope will have come back again. We're in this between time now. And we we're able to celebrate because we know he's coming back. And we know what he's coming to do. And we know it because he told us about the Christmas story in Genesis 3. The backstory. Because as great as the Christmas story is, it has a great backstory, And it's called the whole gospel of Jesus Christ. Because he's coming back one day to complete his victory. Now I thank God. And you should thank God that you live on this side. A Christmas instead of that side. But the best is yet to come. There's still more to come. But clearly hear God in his words say, don't be destroyed by death now. There's a better way. The path of following Jesus and his teachings and my commands is the path to life now. Walk on that path. Let's pray. Jesus, we come in this moment just giving thanks for you. Thank you that you came. Thank you that you're coming back again. Thank you that you came that first time to deliver a crushing blow to Satan's power of sin over us. Thank you that you died an atoning death. And we're raised to life so that even in the here and now, even though it's not complete, even in the here and now, we can find freedom. We can find hope instead of misery. We can find life, abundant life instead of death, even now. Maybe, maybe you're here this morning. Maybe you've never really heard the whole story. The back story about Christmas. Maybe you knew about Christmas and you knew about Easter but you didn't understand the backstory that this God's been at work because of his great love for you. Because he wants you to know that sin kills. But it doesn't have to kill you anymore. You can turn from your sin you can confess it to God right now and you can put your whole trust in Jesus. That name by which anyone can be saved the name of Jesus. And right now, where you're seated, you can call on for the very first time and say, Jesus, I get it now. I get how destructive sin is and how I can't save myself. How no matter how much I try, I, I can't hide, I can't cover it. That only you can. Jesus, thank you that you were willing to cover my sin with your sacrifice. I come now because I want you to cover me. So I confess my need for you. I repent of sin. I choose you, Jesus. I choose your way of life because I want life in you. And the Bible says if you call on that name by which men can be saved, he will save you. You can do that right where you're seated right now. You can trust him with life here and now and all eternity. Most of us here have made that decision but we find ourselves having fallen back into sin somewhere. And the Bible says that he has power even over sin now to crush it in our lives. To give us hope, to bring healing where there's shame. To put relationships back together by the power of his name. If we will trust him, if we will confess our sin to one another and to him. He'll heal us. He'll make us whole. And maybe right now where you're seated, the Holy Spirit is convicting you of something. A place where you have listened to the whisper of Satan more than you've listened to the voice of God and it's killing you. And right now, you just need to repent. You need to turn back to Jesus, to that name that can save, and say, Jesus, I'm following you again. I'm sorry for my sin. I confess it to you. I agree with you. It's killing me. I don't want it to kill anybody else you could turn back to him right now just where you're at you could just say dear Jesus maybe maybe symbolically you want to leave here today you want to nail that to the cross and say Jesus I'm leaving it with you I'm walking away you may want to do that later in our service but the only way any of that's possible is because of Jesus because of who he is because what he brings because of that we want to worship him We want to worship him with our whole lives, with all of our resources, with our heart and soul. We come now, Jesus, bringing your tithe back to you, that which you've blessed us with, that first 10% is yours, not ours. We come bringing gifts and offerings because we want to see that hope, that message of the gospel go to the ends of the earth. So that all men and women, every boy and girl might know how much they're loved and how much you've overcome for them. So we come to worship you, singing about that name above every other name, the name of Jesus, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you're in North Charleston this Sunday, please consider visiting us at our 9 o'clock or 1130 services. We'd love to see you. Again, for more information, visit rivergluff.org. Now go change the world.